You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean, how's it going? David, it's going great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I uh, actually have a drink of the week this week, kind of kind of celebrating that we're close to the end of season one. It's got a, it's a, called Thor's Well Winery in Oregon. It's a Pinot Noir. Yeah. So you actually found a topical drink. You didn't just go to the wine yeah. store and find like the cheapest bottle. No, I found a, so I, I, I like it. It's pretty good. I mean, my favorite wines are always Spanish reds. So this personally, I find it overpriced, but that's just, I think if you like Pinot Noir, you probably like it a lot. Um, I like, I like Spanish wines because they get such good value for how cheap they are. I'd recommend it. It's uh, it has a little more like fresh grape kind of taste where I like stuff that's really aged, really uh, kind of oaky. Yeah. David, I'm very tickled that you got a drink of the week this week. I feel like it's a continuous bit where you just didn't ever have a drink, but I, it I was just gonna really, wait until we get to the one year I'm very mark. Excited. I figure the season, season one mark is good enough. Exactly. Well, my drink of the week is my typical one, which is the Vesper Martini, which is three parts gin, two parts vodka, one part Saint Germain, and then a dash of lemon, like James Bond wanted. So anyway, in this week's episode, I am very excited to announce that we have the first ever guest of Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. I know David and myself have mentioned in previous episodes that while we will still have episodes focused on the Norse myths and sagas, we would also be experimenting a little bit with various uh, relevant episodes called shorts and or in this case, start having guest experience or guest appearances, excuse me. In previous episodes, uh, we have also discussed Old Norse poetry, which serves as the backbone of many of the Norse myths we have discussed on the show. However, when discussing the poetry itself, unfortunately, the extent of our knowledge on Norse poetry often is the equivalent of us saying, yeah, Kenning's bro, which led us to make the comment in the episode on the meat of poetry that we wished we had a friend with a relevant master's degree to help us out with our understanding of the topic, both of us fully knowing I was talking about our guest in today's episode. So allow me to introduce our friend and first ever podcast guest, Chuck. Chuck is a published poet has worked on translating poems from foreign languages. He has a master's in fine arts in creative writing, and he runs a YouTube channel called CSL Essays by Chuck Siebenlander, where he doesn't talk about poetry at all, but it is still another fun, cool hobby of his. So without further ado, I will pass it on to Chuck. Hey, yeah. Uh, hi, everybody. Chuck Siebenlander here. And it's weird. I actually did go and get my master's in poetry, specifically because... Uh, I felt called out in that episode of the podcast. So uh, thank you for spurring my academic career. That's not entirely true. What? <laughs> Go ahead, David. <laughs> no, That's a very quick message. That, that, that actually we yeah. didn't know until we got to talking to Chuck more about this is that Chuck is a published translator of poetry. And that's just a thing that I'm like, I feel like we should have known that before we started the podcast. <laughs> and then we didn't. And I mean, now we're like, well, I'm, this is who we're having on. I'm sure I mentioned it at some point, but it's fine. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my quick, modest, bona fides yeah, I got my master's in fine arts at American University in creative writing in 2013. God, I think it was that long ago. So I actually went to school for prose, like you, you focused on prose or poetry, but I took a number of poetry classes. And actually, since graduating, my publications, such as they are, have been all in poetry. Uh, a few small print and web publications, nothing anyone's probably heard of unless you know poetry publications. Um, but yeah, I also did publish... Actually, during school, I worked on, we had a translation of poetry class, and I worked on the on a set of translations of a set of poems by a Turkish poet whose name is Bechet Negatikil. 
I'm sure I mispronounced that. I always mispronounced it when I was working with my native Turkish speaker who was helping with the literal part of the translation. Um, and yeah, and uh, Cir Circumference Magazine, which is a translation poetry uh, magazine. Was I was reading that today and that, yeah, that it's the, the thing we're talking about today, right? Old Norse poetry, that it's such a tough kind of integrative topic, right? Because there's, you have mm -hmm. to know Old Norse, you have to know the context of all the mythology, which me and Sean are trying to make sense of, right? But then also yeah. you have to know poetry. If you're going to translate it and make it a beautiful poem, you have to really know poetry too. And how could one person have all those skills, right? I mean, you, you know, you could really specialize yourself in that. Otherwise it's having a team of people where y'all communicate well. Oh, for sure. I mean, that that's definitely part of it. And, and, you know, we talked a lot in that class about a lot of people who do translations of poetry, what they will do is work with, a native speaker, but then you have, you know, Jackson Crawford, for example, who has come up more than once on this podcast, does speak Old Norse, or I guess he at least reads it, and does the best version of speaking that anybody could do, I suppose, um, several thousand years later. But either way, and this is sort of what, like, I guess the thesis statement of what I would want to say about this, the really important thing to keep in mind is no matter what, there is no such thing as a one-to-one -one translation, really even of prose, of like normal texts in, from a language to another, um, despite what Google Translate may tell you because words have connotations and words mean different things in different contexts. That's all bundled up in a specifics of a language and a culture. And especially when you're dealing with a poetic structure and verse that doesn't exist anymore. And that was written by people whose sort of thoughts about their poetry we do not have access to. You're never gonna do the perfect translation or, or I guess the quote unquote perfect by which I would mean exact translation. It doesn't exist. I'll just say what you're doing instead is you're compromising. You're picking which compromise you're going to make. And, you know, it's whether you're going to be more literal, whether you're going to be more poetic, how you're going to be more poetic. Are you trying to capture your contemporary era's version of poetic flourishes? Yeah. Or are you trying to sort of evoke old Norse poetic structure to the extent that you can? And that's one of, you know, certainly my theme I always come to on this show is what is true, right? So what's the true idea yeah. they're trying to get across? So it's such an art to poetry of what's the the style we should take is one way to say it maybe, but yeah, it really depends on a lot of things. And you know, I, I've looked up some stuff and I want to talk specifically about old Norse poetic structure specifically, because there's some facets of it that I find really interesting, not just because they're different from like what we might expect in poetry, but because they're literally untranslatable in a poem. It's just a funny thing and to get out of the way at the beginning is that Chuck's always been my uh, ask Mr. English person. I don't know if you're familiar with that Dave Perry <laughs> joke that when I have a question of, Wait, Chuck, can I put these words in this order? Is that allowed for English? That these I am go to for that. But. I am my family's tech support, and I am David's English uh, tutor uh, <laughs> yeah, on an ongoing basis. English? How am I supposed to speak English properly? <laughs> <laughs> How do good English speak? <laughs> yeah. Anyways, John, I'll pass um, it to you. Well, no, I'm yeah. just I'm thinking um, on some of the things you just said. So, when it comes to translating a poem that was written a thousand years ago, and I know you kind of kind of touched on this. Is it harder to do the translation or is it harder to tell that story? And I know you, you kind of hit on both of them, but like, or is it a mix of both that is very difficult for the modern reader and the modern translator? So by do the translation, I assume you're meaning like, you know, literally what is the meaning of the words that I'm seeing on the page? Transcribe that. Yes. Um, and like also like Jackson Crawford, who does a good job of doing that. Like at what point do his liberties kind of affect that message or like what, at what point do those liberties like make it like a Jackson yeah. Crawford poem as opposed to an Old Norse poem. Absolutely. So so the, a big part of that is, you know, Kennings, which you guys have talked about before, are a combination of words that's sort of very explicit, right? It's like a, a compound word that means, and it's, it's basically a single word version of a metaphor. But the thing is, like, especially with languages that are as old as Old Norse, 
or languages are just that are as different from ours as, as that language is. And I should say up front, I am not an expert in Old Norse poetry. I've done mm. about as much research as I guess I can do without being an academic in the field to try and get up to speed on that. There's a density to the language, though. There's a, a density of meaning and potential ways to translate a word. And that's always really tricky because what might be the quote-unquote literal translation might have a slightly different connotation than would, have, than would have been intended by the original translation. Sort of just to pick a, an example out of, my, out of my head. If there's a literal part in a story, say in a poem, where a character is running, let's say he's running towards an enemy, he could be running sprinting, charging, racing, all sorts of different words that have slightly different implications for like how you picture the scene in your mind. And just because one of those words, like maybe charge works better in this context because there's something about the root that, that like slightly fits better, but charge has much more of an aggressive, like physical presence aggressively attacking another. And that may not have been part of the implication of the word in its quote unquote literal form in Norse. So the, even at the word to word level, you are constantly sort of deciding, okay, what's the, what's the important part of this? Whether that's for the story that you want, the, the poem you're writing to tell, whether that's the meaning, the emotion, the, the sort of flourish and sensation you get from reading it. Um, a lot of the Norse poetry that you guys have read that I've been reading and doing some of my research, I think we would see it as very, or certainly in the way Jackson Crawford writes it and translates it, but this seems to be true of it in general. It's very not literal, but it's very prose-esque. Like it's, there's not a lot of flourish built in beyond things like kennings and stuff. And I think part of the reason that happens is because alliterative, alliterative verse, which is what these poems are written in is so fundamentally different from what we think of as rhyme. Rhyme wasn't a thing at this point really in, in poetry. It, I'm sure people were conscious of the fact that you could rhyme words, but I think partially because of the way that syllables and like the way that the phonetics- That's not phonetics, what they were going for. Like that's not the- yeah. There's a different kind of like, how do I establish rhythm? And that was with alliterative verse. And so I'm not going to speak too much about this because it was really hard to figure out because in order to actually understand something like this, you have to understand the language well enough to understand certain things. For example, do you guys know, have you heard of at least the concept of like stressed and unstressed syllables? That's, that's the stuff that we don't know enough about, I think, but it's the meter, right? Yeah. 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 So, so you're talking about like rhythm and meter which is part of poetry. It's especially, um, when you talk about free verse, it's less a thing when you come to modern contemporary poetry, but it's definitely a thing, especially, you know, the, the classic example for stressed and unstressed that you'll learn in school is Shakespeare, who didn't always, but frequently would use uh, what's called iambic pentameter. That's the thing I'm learning in school, but I'm like, man, I couldn't make sense of yeah. Shakespeare when I was in school. I probably should come back to it now. <laughs> for sure. Uh, I wouldn't guarantee that you'll have any better chance having read some more of Shakespeare since high school. So iambic pentameter the the way you break that word down so an iamb i a m b is a set of two syllables unstressed syllable and then a stressed syllable and so pentameter just means you do that five times and that's your one line of verse one of the classic shakespeare lines where you can hear this is from richard the 3rd now is the winter of our discontent kind of like draws on or the end and now draws on and is it's, it's every other so it's every other so now is the winter yeah. of our discontent. The thing about that is, this has always bugged me, whether or not a syllable is stressed or unstressed depends on how you say it. Like you notice the way I just had to read that as opposed to now is the winter of our discontent. Stressed and unstressed in English, particularly, even in Shakespeare's day was not nearly, is not nearly as like abrupt about it as I think it might have been in, in a language that's sort of as brusque and short 
as um, poetry seems to be in Old Norse. But basically you use it like amb iambic pentameter and that kind of thing is like the most structured you can get. It's like super harsh. Like we have 10 syllables. You alternate unstressed and stressed. You're going to rhyme in this particular way. Um, like a lot of the Shakespeare's sonnets follow the very traditional sonnet form, which has a very precise rhyme scheme. And, you know, the idea there is similar to what you might find in like enlightenment paintings, which is that they basically were under the impression that they have figured out the right way to do these things, like the perfect way a, to yeah, do a poem. Like the, the Greeks were all about exactly. this. There's a mathematical yes. ratio and it's perfectly beautiful. It's, it's basically exactly. with music, you would have the rhythm, the notes would be mm -hmm. noted by rhythm to tell you what to do, right? But so this is a thing in language that it, you might be able to tell, or you might kind of need someone to tell you, this is how you should say it. This is one of the weird things about like reading Shakespeare cold. Like say you just pick up a Shakespeare, you're not in a class, you just pick up and read it. You aren't living in Shakespeare's time. You don't have, unless you grew up in a weird house, you don't have familiarity with the forms of verse and the forms that a playwright would use in their plays. So all of that context, because it's important to note that when I said Shakespeare doesn't always use iambic pentameter in his plays, what he typically does is iambic pentameter is used by nobles, like people who are like high speech or somebody who is trying to act highfalutin will use iambic pentameter to sort of indicate to the audience, oh, this guy's like a fancy pants. You won't use it very deliberately with characters who are, you know, your Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. You're just like guys in the in the periphery. This could be happening in Old Norse, right? But if you don't read Old Norse, you couldn't tell. Right? Yeah. This is exactly right, and, and and you know, it's it's worsened by the fact that with a lot of these Old Norse poems, they've gone through other hands. Beowulf has this problem too. Even though it's in Old English, it still has the problem of having been retouched, let's say, by Christian writers many years after it was actually written, and you don't really know where the seams are in terms of whose form was being imposed on it when. So so like translation, even in the best of scenario, which is to say like the guy who translated it is sitting right next to you or the woman who translated is sitting right next to you and you can have a, and they're bilingual so you can have a conversation, which totally happens because even if you're bilingual, you may not be comfortable for whatever reason translating your own poetry. It's still this negotiation because there's all these little things about, about language. Um, one of the poems I translated from the Turkish poet it took forever to realize what the poem was about because, so the person I was working with, she's a native Turkish speaker, but she didn't live in Turkey. She, she had as a child and she moved back there later to Istanbul, but she, she didn't understand a metaphor that was happening in the text. So it was just like the poem was like incomprehensible. Yeah. And then I realized at some point as I was working, it was like, oh, he's talking about a phoenix. He's talking about a phoenix rising from the, and as soon as that clicked, like the whole yeah. rest of the poem, like locks into place. But you like, have to work for those things, even yeah. in the best circumstances. Well, so I, I and... could not help a person take Shakespeare and turn it into German, right? I just, I don't understand Shakespeare yeah. well enough to do it, right? So that's- Well, and then the question is, do you do, you do iambic pentameter or is there something in <laughs> contemporary German that gives you that same effect? And it does remind yeah. me when we look at the Old Norse, like we're just struggling with the words, right? Me and Sean are just struggling to say, you know, your mungund. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So like the idea of that, like I was looking at the alliterative verse- I'm going to join you guys in butchering the translations here or the pronunciations here. The form apparently that these poems would have taken is a uh, Fornierslag, which is a form that would have been very close to what Beowulf, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica online. That's surprisingly so good, by the way, but, compared to David and I. So we <laughs> get that on our sixth try. Yeah. I, my, my approach to words like that is to just go for it and assume that as many letters are silent as possible, um, because that usually tends to be true. But um, also because I don't know what that little squiggly on the O means. So I'm not even going to pretend. So the verse form is close to what the Beowulf would use. Though obviously they're, they're different languages, although they have the same sort of Germanic root. The word Vornierslag, 
That's going to just change every time I say it. I get it lit. The literal meaning of it is past words made or the way of ancient words, which even right there tells you like that translates weird. Like there's not a clean, there's not a clean one-to-one there. Because here's the question. Does that mean we are talking the way the Elden people would have talked? Does it mean we are telling the stories of the ancient people? Does that mean we are descendants of, and now we'll celebrate it? Like there's so many different ways you can interpret it that we change. Yeah, the way the stories of the gods are told. Something, right? Sure, right. The basic structure, they would use, they use stanzas, obviously. Two to eight lines. So there clearly wasn't a lot of strong consistency to that. Although old English had used continuous verse. So there were no line breaks in that way. That was the one I wanted to ask you because... And, and it kind of connects to what we were previously talking about, because these were, it was an oral poetry tradition, right? It was not yeah. written poetry until the Christians came, right? So that idea of how it flowed and how you told this poem to a guy when you're the bard in someone's yeah. hall, right? That's really makes a difference. So, yeah. I, and I actually think about that because an interesting aspect of this poetry, there's a really common thing in modern poetry of basically any kind called enjambment, which is just line breaks in the middle of a sentence. So if you're doing rhyme scheme, you aren't going to break every line at the end of a sentence because you want to like break it so that you can get, you know, the rhyme to be at the end of the the words. But apparently the Norse poets, and this wasn't true of the old English poets because they were just running it all together apparently, but they would avoid enjambment. Every line is its own thought, Mm -hmm. which probably lends itself a lot better to an oral tradition because it's a lot easier to, you're not thinking about like, oh, how do I have to like, remember two lines, but it's actually one thought. You're just like, here's a thought, here's a thought, here's a thought, here's a thought. You got to um, chunk. It's, 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 I'll bring my little bit of psychology, right? That you have to chunk these things all in your head. You, you can't read and I mean, the script. Yeah. And I noticed just in, in the few I even just looked at a little more closely of, of Crawford's translations and then looking at the original language, they use a ton of repetition as well. Right. We actually, I want to talk about it a little more because like somewhere in some places, Crawford embellishes it more in ways I find very interesting. But in general, you can see there's like intentionally repeated thoughts, phrases, or even several lines at once. Because then um, Hagamal has this. Right. What you have uh, to remember the, is only two lines, right? You're, you're yeah. doing two lines and you're repeating it eight times in the style of the first one, right? That's sort of just. Right, right. Uh, so Jackson Crawford's a really interesting example of this. Obviously, he's the contemporary. So I think, like, as far as I can tell, that like his most modern translation is sort of very popular and, and popularized. Mm-hmm. I found this YouTube video that guys can probably link in the show notes. I sent you the the URL. It's just like a five minute video of him talking about why he did this translation, which was funny because like I was looking to see if he had said something about this. Somewhere. I was like, oh no, he literally made a YouTube video saying all this. Perfect. If you don't mind, I'm going to read just a little bit of what he said. Because I know I've heard Chuck did our research, so we don't have to. Well, (laughs) I know I've heard you guys talk about how Crawford's translations compared with some of the other previous translations feels less poetry-ish. It feels less flowery, feels more literal. And I think that's like late 1800s, early 1910s. And it's what's interesting is I don't know that that's exactly how Crawford would describe it. So I'm just going to read that. This is a couple of paragraphs. So this is from uh, an April 2017 video that he did. But in teaching Norse mythology, I wanted my students to be able to approach the poetic Edda as a source of information about myth for these narratives. And I found it very difficult to use the existing translations. The translations that existed at the time were either in very deliberate, archaic English, Shakespearean thou art English, is how he describes it, or they were designed for a scholarly audience and were so literal in their translation that their language was also fairly difficult to piece out. 
I wanted a translation that was in contemporary English because I don't believe that just because something was written in the Middle Ages that it needs to sound like it was translated in the Middle Ages. I don't see that there's any value in throwing in a thou art when the original audience of the poems in Old Norse didn't think of Old Norse as quote unquote old. Why not approach the text with the fresh perspective of someone who encountered it for the first time then in contemporary language? What was contemporary language then? I also believe that a contemporary poetic style more ably renders the feeling that an original audience member might have had in listening to one of those poems soon after it was composed. And that's interesting because what his translation does is it makes it easier for the listener to understand what the story is of the myths, which is great for two idiot podcasters in the 21st century. But yeah. then when, if you look at Kath, Catherine Larrington's um, you know, her version, her translation, it's going to be a little bit different and tougher to read, but at least she has like the notes to explain like what may be said, but maybe there's like some more truth in her translation, whereas Jackson Crawford is kind of like making it his own thing. Well, see, this is the interesting question when you're talking about truth, because you're not, you're not wrong because um, the project of Larrington and the more academic translators and in general, a more academic translation. Like I remember I went, I once read Dante's Inferno with a translation where it had the the original and the English on like facing pages and then just a ton of footnotes because it turns out everyone in hell is Dante's political enemy. But anyway, so like it's necessary to understand what he's talking about. Right. So you can't just read Dante's Inferno without the academic sort of historic, social, political, historical context he was living in. And likewise, you could make the argument that these poems only really make sense in the sense that you're getting what they were meant to convey. If you have all of that additional context, I could make the counter argument that what Crawford is going for is more of a, I want to capture the sense of sitting down by the fire and telling these stories. Like I want to, I want to convey to you not so much the full depth of meaning, but I want to be able to someone who's living now to understand what it would have felt like to hear these stories at the time, what it would have felt like being more important ultimately than literally what is all the stuff that's being conveyed here. I imagine it's also that because he's a teacher, right? So as yeah. I said, like when, when they told me Shakespeare and I was in, you know, even though it's an AP English, but I was in my senior year, I'm like, I didn't get anything from it. I'm like, this is a waste of my time. Right. But then yeah. he puts it in a way where you can understand it. If you're a high school senior, if you're you know first or second year in college, right. That's very important to get people to care about any of this, right? That yeah. once I spent six months studying this stuff and I spent three hours looking at the same poem, like, yeah, I can find some right. more depth in it, right? But that's, yeah. I, I think he would even quibble with the idea that what he's doing isn't poetic. Like he, he clearly has put thought into maybe not the most flourishing, but I think, and there are different schools of thought with this when it comes to poets now all, all over the place, because you have free verse and you have people who are very experimental going all the way back to like E.E. E. Cummings, who's experimenting with, the verse as sort of a structure, a physical thing on the page. I mean, you know, E. Cummings famously doesn't use a lot of capitalization, is doing is doing indentation and stuff. And so there's this argument that like what poetic means, like what something feeling poetic is, just depends on how you feel about poetry and how you are as a writer. A great example of this, and I'm glad you brought up high school because this is like one more example of something before we talk about the Old Norse poetry more specifically is... Beowulf, because I mentioned it earlier. So we all read, I'm sure, Beowulf at some point in high school, or at least most people did. If you are around our age, or probably even significantly younger, or even older, you probably read Seamus Haney's uh, Haney's translation, because it's the most famous translation of Beowulf, and it's the like academic version. But in 2020, so not that long ago, 
Maria Davana Headley uh, wrote a new translation of Beowulf. And I, before I read it to you, I want to read you a little bit of her of the um, preface to her book because she talks about why she made some of the choices she made. I think that this version of like what Beowulf is doesn't come across when you learn it in high school. Was her like notes on it, why she translated it the way she did or why she translated it the way she did because of Haney? Not as a result of Haney. There are countless translations of Beowulf sure. just because, you know, it is the old okay. English poem that everybody wants to translate. And it's a super interesting text with a lot of gaps and weirdness. She basically says in here, like, translating Beowulf is an opportunity to play because you have to make decisions because it's not all there, which is going to be true of anything that goes far back enough. And that's why I say um, with the old Norse all the time. It's like, here's a line that even Carolyn Larrington says, no one knows what this means. So I said, David says yeah. he gets to decide what it means, right? Yeah. So, so here's one quick, one quick quote from her. Despite its reputation to generations of unwilling students forced as freshmen into arduous translations. By the way, I'm really glad I never had to translate Beowulf. Beowulf is a living text in a dead language. The kind of thing meant to be shouted over a crowd of drunk celebrants. Even though it was probably written down in the quiet confines of a scriptorium, Beowulf is not a quiet poem. It's a dazzling, furious, funny, vicious, desperate, hungry, beautiful, mutinous, maudlin, supernatural, rapturous shout, which I'm sure you remember from high school very fondly at being feeling that way. I liked it better than Shakespeare, but it was yeah. still that it, that it was hard, right? The translation they give you wasn't easy to make sense of. Yeah. Well, so, so here you go. So um, the first lines of Haney's translation, which we all would have read, the very first line starts with so, which in, in the old English is, I think the word is wait, but anyways, so. The spear Danes in days gone by and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness. We have heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. So that's like, okay. Headley's translation. Bro, tell me we still know how to talk about kings. In the old days, everyone knew what men were. Brave, bold, glory bound. Only stories now, but all sound the spear Danes song hoarded for hungry times. She starts a poem with bro. She repeatedly uses that word bro. And she explains in the, in the preface that she uses it because in her mind, like Beowulf is a braggart's poem. Like it's a poem of a guy in a bar telling you about this thing he did that he probably didn't do, or at least the thing he did wasn't as cool as he's trying to make it sound, but he's like conveying all of this completely unearned, like masculine energy. And that's what Beowulf is. It's like, like guys puffing themselves up in front of each other. There's another passage that I won't read, but is basically just like, it's like a rap battle boast. Like, it's ridiculous. She uses hashtag blessed at one point in this translation. <laughs> and her point is like, even when it, like, even the original form we have of Beowulf now is a mishmash of things that were contemporary, things that were old even then and archaic even then, and things that were shoved in way after the fact. So why wouldn't a translation also throw in wild stuff from all over the place? But the thing is, the ones that were used in Beowulf don't translate because we're not going to recognize them as contemporary or archaic. Yeah. So I mean, you do a translation by doing contemporary archaic versus contemporary. Does that yeah, make sense? I've made the point to Sean several times that like the Havamal virtues, I'm like, these are all things that you need to learn when you're a middle schooler in the cafeteria, right? Where there's no supervision. Mm -hmm. right? That because right. I think the Vikings probably to some level, at least, you know, we're thinking we're so great moderns, right? Like emotionally, we're kind of more in that place where 
your status among peers matters, right? That you're going to have these conflicts well, and you got to show how tough you are and all these things, right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's important to think about why, especially with a, with a, a oral tradition, like why are people telling these stories? It's not just to, like with the Havamal, as much as it feels or sort of reads like Proverbs, essentially, like you don't do campfire stories of just telling everybody their morals. It's like, hey, Aesop's fables aren't just the moral of the story at the end. They're a story. And they're supposed to sort of get you like excited or in a mood or engaged in some way. And I think we lose that, like you lose that with a literal translation a little but bit. When you, when you spend enough time with these things, it's like when you go to a friend's house and there's two hams, you just eat one of the hams. Right? <laughs> and it's kind of like, right, you know, it's, right. It's sort of a proverb, right? But it's done in this way where you're like, yeah, that just makes sense. I shouldn't eat well, I mean, it's, hams. Yeah. <laughs> but it also goes back like the, the other, the, the, another example is like Leviticus or like the old, um, old Testament laws, some of which are just completely bafflingly, I mean, specific to their time. Like the things about like, don't mix certain foods and beverages, don't mix certain cloths. Um, Bad time. (laughs) Well, it's all about like specifics that would have been true then, or probably would have made sense to someone then, even if it was just a metaphor, like who knows? Like, you know, you're, you're guessing a little bit with all of this. Don't eat eat Um, oysters when they sat out in the sun all day. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, so, so that's, I I just think that's what, what, what I would emphasize is like, Poetry, even even if you're writing poetry, having written poetry a- as a poet, um, not to sound like a complete jackass, but anyway, poetry is not, if you just wanted to tell somebody something, you just write it down, right? Like you just do it in, ver- you do it in prose, you would do, and even then, like, obviously there's fiction and there's reasons, but poetry, once you've started a poem, once you've said this is a poem, you've made a statement already that there was something more going on here than literal meaning. There is something more interesting going on here, something yeah. worth exploring. And so I think that gives a translator a lot of license to, to think about why, like about why the writer wrote it that way. Why is this repetition being used? Why is the framing set up like this? And with that in mind, I, I'd love to jump into a couple of the actual poems. This is sure. this is very interesting because like in Chuck, I could be wrong, but it sounds like you're saying like there's something beautiful of what Jackson Crawford's doing, even if he may take the most liberties because he's getting the the, mm-hmm. like, the agenda done. There's still something evocative about what he's doing, even if it's more, the fact that it's more readable doesn't make it less poetic is I guess what I might say. Like that's a feature, not a bug, I suppose. And I think in his mind, at least what he's doing is still poetry. It's not simply an academic exercise. And I think it's good because I'm a little too critical on it, but I think what it is that I want well, is like you're saying, right? There's something that feels like it's lost, but I don't even want all the these and thous either. Right. But I'd like well, but, probably a poet yeah. to sit down with Jackson Crawford and make it even more what would this seem like if it was really an oral tradition bards speaking it, right? But that's... Imagine, by contrast, how J.R.R. Tolkien would have dealt with it, because Tolkien was a huge nerd for fancy forms of speech. So he would have done... Like, he would have probably gone in the opposite direction and said, I want something that looks like, you know, an old Catholic ball- uh, ode to something. All those dwarven songs he has where I'm like, Tolkien, I'm trying to make sense of this dwarven song. <laughs> it's hurting my head. The man loved to show off that he had written a language, several actually, that was kind of his whole deal. But yeah, we, we, we can get started with a couple of these poems. So I, I just, I picked a few out. The first two are the first two are for the poetic edict, just because like they immediately struck me as interesting in this for a couple of different reasons. So we can start with Vlaspa. Again, don't, don't make fun of my attempts to pronounce things. But so there, there's the, so, so the key line in this poem, which I guess I will remind you are listeners is uh, the first poem in the poetic edit. And it's the one where the witch gives the prophecy to Odin. And, and, you know, it starts with some generic stuff and then gets into Ragnarok towards the end. And I think reading it now, at least it has this very strong feeling of, are you sure you want to keep going here? Like, are you sure you want to know more? 
and it's this line that's repeated. I think I counted it. I think it was like 19 times. Um, and I was like, cause I was actually checking to see if it, in the original verse, if it was exactly the same or if it, if there were any differences in the grammar and it is exactly the same line. It's, uh, Oh, here you go. Whatever. So that we'll do a little more of that. Uh, so that, that D shape, it's a D, but it's like a TH. I, I did this for Sean the other day. Well, I like, I like to teach things when I, when I know a thing. <laughs> that is, am I, do, so it's like am I doing word. it as a diff? It's like the versus there's another symbol. that's for the, like the thin, but this one is the, the so thank you okay perfect um, and we so could so be I, wrong there as well just saying oh of course we're 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 all trying we're doing our best. I, the thing is like everybody could be wrong because yeah. certainly nobody who grew up learning that speaking this language is still alive but so i found a few different translations of this line from previous translations were do you know yet or what or do you still seek to know or what and then Crawford's translation, this is actually really interesting, uh, is have you learned enough yet, All Father? Mm-hmm. And this is something he mentions that he does a lot, which is he inserts the, what's the word I'm looking for? He inserts the person to whom the speaker is speaking a lot. So here, All Father, which is not in the translation, he's adding to, to make it clear, I think, immediately to an audience that this is the witch speaking to Odin. What's interesting about that to me is that it fronts it, it puts odin front and center of a poem that he's not actually necessarily front and center of in the actual reading of it right because like in the in the original reading this is essentially just a monologue by a witch who this line translated literally could just be her saying would you like to know more all right i'm gonna keep talking like it could just be her just kind of like sitting here rambling like, like a, yeah, like, a rhetorical question right just <laughs> but there's clearly this implication that like, the, and especially that, uh, and I don't know if the Edha, Edha uh, Havat literally translates to or what, or if that's close. just, yeah, if I can remember. Um, but that's clearly like, like a lot of other translators hinge on that as like the, do you want to know or what? Like, like, sh- shall we continue? Or would you like to not have a bad time? And that's exactly it. And I think we briefly, we haven't done an episode yet on Volospod. Um, but we have mm-hmm. briefly discussed this one like line that Crawford keeps repeating. And if you look at do you know yet or what, it what does that mean? But yeah. then if you look at Crawford's translation, have you learned enough yet, all father? You kind of get the vibe that this you kind of are able to tell yourself a story that this witch was awoken by Odin from the death and she's pretty yeah. upset. So right. So saying, Have you learned enough? Have you learned enough yet, all father? Like, can I yeah. go back to sleep? And she's kind of like trolling him. Yeah. And that's something that, you may not, that a 21st century reader would not have gotten from do yep. you know yet or what? And I, I think that's very interesting. And that's where I can appreciate kind of what Crawford's doing here because it allows us I mean, to it, see like what's happening. Yeah. Like in a, in a traditional, in like an oral tradition where you've heard stories about Odin, and you kind of know that his whole thirst for knowledge thing is, is a deal. You probably don't need his name coming up a lot in here. You understand that what's happening here, this which is being driven to tell him more and more. But I was wondering, like, you know, because because this particular phrasing to me kind of sets up Odin as somewhat surprisingly passive. This is not intentional on Crawford's part. I think it's like the, a function of the poem being not a dialogue, but instead a monologue. Is that there's no part here where Odin's like, oh no, please keep going. I'm not I done yet. Like that aspect of fate. That what what else would Odin do? Odin is going to right. Keep- knowing and even when he knows things that now he's going to make more problems for himself because he shouldn't have known that yeah we'll keep doing it right so that's yeah how i read it. absolutely absolutely but like 
But what's interesting about it to me is like, especially the way this poem moves, you could, if you were feeling spicy as a translator, add or, or tweak some of this to really put in this sense of like, there's a tug of war going on and the witch is losing. Or like she's trying to stop this from happening and it keeps happening. So I, I thought like a potential translation you could do of that line instead is something like, are you satisfied all father? No, fine then. And then we go on to the next line. Right. So like add in this section where it's clear that Odin is not just sort of sitting back. Odin is like, nope, we're keep going. Nope, I wanna know everything. And that, that I think would be a very modern and probably not accurate for a number of reasons, but it's a very modern way you might do it because it centers Odin's agency in a way that I'm not sure this poem is really right. and that's And that's cares the about. bias, right? That if you look yeah. at it as it's very passive, it really doesn't care what you do. But we're just right. going to let you know that you're going to yeah. do something. But what's, right? See, yeah. and what's interesting about it immediately is that it's absolutely true. Yeah. But Crawford's translation kind of half steps there inadvertently by because he's trying to accomplish something else. But this is what happens. You do one thing meaning something something else, but there are certain other implications and connotations you create in poetry when you do that um, because it's so dense, because there's so little to work with here. Every line can be sort of pick, gets picked apart. So uh, again, he, he Crawford completely doesn't, completely ignores the structure of the original line, right? Like there's no, the rhythm of it is not there in any sense yeah. in his, but it, I think it tracks a lot better on a sort of immediate instinctive level understand that line of like the every other translation i found was just like awkwardly phrased i think for that reason well, if i think about the as i don't quite read old norse but the, some of it looks a little bit like latin in times that that mm. tooth might be like um i think in latin truth is veritas does you know truth? Mm -hmm. right so yeah that, something like that do you have truth yet yeah or, right or keep going right that's right. but the, yeah that that doesn't it doesn't make sense entirely in modern normal english right but that yeah on some level when you, when you get into stuff like you enjoy old you know um old Greek and Latin and things like that. It's like, oh, it works on that level, but yeah. that's not how most people are going to read this. Absolutely. And it, so it's, again, it's like, who are you writing this for? And, and what is the sense of this that you want to get across? Um, another one, Havamal gets into this repetition we were talking about before. Yeah. I find it really interesting. So the, the stanzas eight and nine in Crawford's translation of it start with a man is happy. So it's a man is happy if he finds praise and friendship, et cetera, et cetera. A man is happy if he finds good advice within himself, so on and so forth. And the Old Norse, those are not identical lines. They are hin ersail and sa ersail, whatever, um, which other translators will translate as happy the one or happy the man, or you know, happy is a person, happy is whatever. They're different pronouns, if, effectively. So there's a question here of why does Crawford do this? Because it's not like the line loses readability if you just say, you could, you could do with this any number of ways. I don't obviously don't know what Hin and Sa literally translate to, but you I, could I say, if we really want someone to is happy. <laughs> right, right. You could say a man is happy. Anyone is happy could be the next line, right? You could, you could totally do it in a way that would parse as trying to echo it. But, but I think Crawford deliberately, and this, I, this is where I would say this is a poetic license he's taking as opposed to a literalism license he wants the repetition to be clear. He wants to be clear that for you to see and sort of recognize immediately, ah, this is because this is part of the oral tradition. What we're doing is sort of like a call and response almost. Yeah. Um, we are we are saying that we're starting, and the Havamal does this like crazy at the back end with the the Lodfafnir. Yeah. I counsel you, Lodfafnir. Translates the novice poet, yeah. So, yeah, but he says, I counsel you, Lodfafnir, if you'll take my advice, if you'll profit, if you learn it, it'll do you good if you remember it. And that whole stupid thing, um, which is three lines in Old Norse and four in Jackson Crawford's. But it's it creates such the sense of like, I don't know, if you read it literally as dialogue, it would seem absurd. 
it's, it's a song. Uh, it, it really flows. But right, exactly. It's a refrain. It's it's him sort of like like it's it sets the tone for what this is. It's advice, and therefore we're going to sort of like create this this sense of structure to it. And so um, when Crawford translates into English, he reifies that. He makes that stronger because by doing that, it clicks a lot faster for you as the English reader. And and I will also say I would imagine that half the time in the oral tradition, someone would just say kin or sail both times because that's how oral traditions work. You're not reading off of a script. So those repetitions probably did end up being literal in the actual oral retellings sometimes. The thing that's, that's subtle, as I looked, I, I went and looked at the old Norse and tried to separate it out where it's, probably no one cares, right? Like you're saying, like, how seriously is this? Are we looking at it like Bible texts that we're doing a Bible study on? Or is it just a song that we sing while we're drinking, right? That's a major question. But, right, well, it's both, isn't it? Right. So. But, the, but, but the way the two different lines. So one is that um, this is my translation of it, that that one is fortunate who for himself obtains so that he, if he gets it for himself. But then the other one mm-hmm. is one is fortunate. He who has already possesses it within himself. Right. So the one's about grabbing the ones about you already got. it, Right. So you're thinking that like the, the first one would be the stanza eight and the second one would be the stanza nine. Right. Yep. See, it's so interesting because like. That, I, that seems totally valid to me, except that you're grabbing two different connotations for the same word and using one in one place and another in the other, which is not invalid. It just creates a whole different That's vibe, what, right? Yeah. And you're, you're you're putting an implication, a connotation of the English text that is sort of there, right? It's it's there in the sense that the word means those things and other things in the original, but you sort of have to like English is messy this way. We have so many damn words for everything that it means that our, our words tend not to have a lot of compact meaning individually. So you kind of end up having to pick because words the, the words in our language just don't tend to convey right. but to multitudes me it has of meaning all at once. The first one says, yeah. like, here's the things you should try to learn. And then it's, and if you learn it right, you get the next thing. Right. So but you notice, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. Yeah. I will also note though, you have to make that the phrasing of that, the grammar of it's really awkward because <laughs> that's the only way you can do it so that it still sounds like it's meant right. to echo. If you just made them like straightforward lines, they would just sound like two different sentences now and you lose that sense of, of repetition. So like Crawford makes this decision of, well, if I, if I don't want to do a bunch of thou arts and like clunky phrasing, yeah. I will just make the, the, the potential repetition, the echoing literal repetition. And I then think, you still get it. I think the only thing he would have to change is I'm going back to now trying to take his style because my style is very weird, right? That a man is happy if he finds praise and friendship within himself. But then the next mm-hmm. part would be a man is happy if he has good advice within himself. Mm-hmm. Right? You just right. change lines to you already have. It. Yep. But he's moved it so that that first line keeps that that rhythm, right? And, and um, I think that would be like that word "find." If you if you had two different words, that they're both "find," but they mean two different things. Like one is you find it looking out; the other one is you find it within, right? But David, you, you would have had a lot of friends in my uh, poetry workshops, I think. But I wouldn't um, have I was. It's only now that I actually understand poetry. Sure. Sure. Uh, and then one more I want to talk about real quick, and then we can sort of talk more, sort of go all over the place, uh, is, oh, God, Thrymskvida. The, the one where Thor's hammer gets stolen. Thrymskvida. Thrymskvida, so, yeah, it doesn't I'm not going to actually read anything from this one. I just want to note that I find it interesting that the um, the first stanza in Old Norse is four lines, and the lines are relatively long. Crawford's is eight lines, and they're all really short. The main reason this happens is that Crawford's using enjambment, which is a modern thing that they didn't do, by which I mean the the, the stanza in um, Crawford's line breaks in between the sentences, whereas the original sentence, 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 four full thoughts. 
Crawford doesn't feel the need to replicate this. And I think there, there's a number of reasons you might do that. One is that we as uh, contemporary readers, uh, enchantment's just a part of poetry. Like it's just, it's it's been in, it's been a part of poetry for thousands of years at this point. It's very natural, I think, to expect it. It's very awkward when we don't get it. Especially if you're translating poetry, it necessarily leads to weird line lengths because some thoughts just translate shorter than others. But also, uh, when I was reading about Old Norse, I read this thing that said that it has a characteristic terseness, which had something to do with sort of as that language developed, it lost some of the unstressed syllables in the in the phonetics. And so it just became a very sort of like barky kind of language. Is it a little um, like German? Would you say it's German more? Yes, it's well, and it's it's from that Germanic line of languages for sure. But the thing is, like, like the longer a line is in English, the more it's going to feel like a complex sort of like flowy thing. And that's not what Jackson wants. He's trying to get, give you the sense of reading the poem in its original context, which in this case means I'm going to break the lines up. The enjambment part where we're not going to register as a thing that's happening, what we will register is short line, short line, short line, short line, like boom, 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 boom. So he's sacrificing some of the literal structure to actually, it's weird because he he changes the structure, but he's changing the structure in order to communicate the structure, if that makes sense. Like he's changing the structure to a thing a type of structure in a contemporary context that does the same thing that the original was, was doing in its context. That's the sort of, that's what poetry translation is. It's like a mess of this sort of thing, sacrifices and compromises and decisions. I was just saying, this is pretty awesome. Cause I know I made a joke earlier about how like the extent of our Norse poetry knowledge was the fact that Kennings exist. And now like they get to understand <laughs> that this, this is like a problem that may like every translator or every poet has yeah. when it comes to like looking at old sources like this. So. Yeah. Kennings are like a weird, uh, are like especially weird, I think, because you you have to do a lot of different work at the same time with those. Uh, if you want if you want to keep them as a Kenning, you have to be able to find a translation of two compound words that have anywhere close to the same compactness of meaning as those words probably do in the original Old Norse. So you like, and Kennings is something we're like kind of familiar with because Beowulf uses them and that's like the main old thing that everybody knows about that's translated. So you kind of have to do them. But it sort of sticks you in a weird place where you have a lot more freedom, I think, with others, some of these forms and um, conventions to ignore or play around with them in a way where your audience might get better effect. Well, and you um, need to understand the whole mythology to get the kenning sometimes, because that's what the one yeah. I was just looking at was it was talking about Frigg's great loss or something like Frigg's grief, like translated quite literally. But they're trying to yeah. figure out how to translate this idea. The word was still much more, it was much more dense. There's a lot more to it than just grief. But her first grief is her son Balder dies, but then her second grief mm -hmm. is that Odin himself dies. And that's kind of, right. you know, you, yeah, you know, um, that's in, kind of what that word means. Yeah. In a much funnier, non, not specifically Old Norse example, apparently some translators of Beowulf have translated that poem <clears throat> because of some of the kennings used to describe Beowulf as literally a poem about a giant bear who shows up and brags about how cool he is. Um, because apparently there's at least one kenning that refers to Beowulf yeah. as a bear man or something like that. And also more, sort of more, Comp in a more complicated way, Grendel's mother in that poem, you may remember, is a dragon at the end of the poem. Yeah. But before she's a dragon, and also the fact that she's a dragon is sort of implied. It's not clear that that dragon is Grendel's mother. It's just sort of like something that translators assume. It just could be like, she's um, a dragon of a woman, but she was actually just a woman. Well, there, so there's a lot of, so this is the thing, there's a lot of language and Kenning specifically used to describe her that you could, and people like Tolkien and others did translate as literally she's a monster. But the words in that language just kind of meant like female warrior yeah. or like female strong person um, or something like that. And so like, like there's no reason to translate her as a monster unless you start thinking about, you know, 
the the use of the woman in myths like this as sort of the temptress or the the Eve or the you know the the person who creates the downfall, which I think that that uh, weird Beowulf movie from a while ago like made that even more explicit by making it Angelina Jolie. CGI naked Angelina Jolie seducing whoever it was who played Beowulf. It reminds me of when Sean just a couple poems, a couple episodes ago was there's a phrase where it's like, it could be go where the evil ones will get you. Or the troll women. Go where the troll woman will get you. Or it could be go where the fates will take you. Right. There's, there's like, you could almost take it all those different ways. Right. And that's. uh, Well, it's like, what, what, what was a troll to old Norse people? And is it the same troll you were thinking of? Cause I always think of the one, the very bad uh, CGI one from the first Harry Potter movie. Um, but then I also think of the slightly better CGI one from the first Lord of the Rings movie. But then I also think of, you know, just like the things from the book where the wild things are, or just the typical bridge troll thing. Bridge trolls couldn't possibly have been a thing, right? In old Norse, but something like that, I'm sure. There's some experts who really get into what are people meaning with trolls. There's actually a good book on it. I'll I'll put it in the show notes if I find it. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is like the beauty of being an academic in these kind of fields is because there's, it's like biblical stuff because there's so much of it and it's so dense and no one, no one's like grandson's grandson's grandson is around to tell you what anyone meant. Like this stuff is so old that you can pretty much just make, not make stuff up, but you can go wild with interpretation. Well, and, and that's um, what we've talked about it you know, Sean, sometimes. Cause like that question, like, is there a guy in a shack in Norway who actually has a pretty <laughs> close connection to this oral tradition and what he thinks trolls are hiding out in his woods. That's better than what I think they are. So but even it. if he did, his version of that oral tradition several thousand years newer, which means there's other oral traditions in it. Oral traditions mutate so much more fluidly than things that are written down. The only reason Shakespeare is still read as Shakespeare now is because Shakespeare wrote down his plays, except he didn't write down all his plays, not in the way we read them. What we read are usually reconstructed versions of his plays that were probably not the way they would have been performed. And that sort of thing happens all the time with writing of any kind, but particularly poetry. Um, but, you know, Beowulf and Old Norse both have this thing with um, Snorri Sturluson. Yeah. Yep. Dallas, um, yes. Very good. Uh, of, of like, first you have the Old Norse, then you have some guy who was really big into Jesus who decided that this is also going to be about Jesus. And then you have several years, several eons after that of loss and mutation and interpretation. And it's, it's, um, I think like, like some of the translators, I think, I think the best way to approach it is that it's a mess and that's good because it means you get to pry different meanings out of it, like different angles. Queer theory does a lot with this of reading texts through a lens of, um, cause, cause, you know, I, I, sorry, I should back up. Do you know what queer theory is when I say that? Do you know what that means? I do, but I can't explain it any better than you can. No, yeah. (laughs) So it's an academic thing. Um, Queer theory is basically the idea of doing, um, I can't really, I I didn't do queer theory in school. But fundamentally, if you talk about like a queer reading of something, what you're doing is, well, it starts, you know, you start with... um, the death of the author, like the the culture, like the, the LGBT is kind of a modern culture because some of our modern culture doesn't accept LGBT people. Yeah, like kind of, sort of. It really, it's it's a technique of reading literature, by which I mean sort of media, through a lens of challenging rather than reestablishing heteronormativity. So you basically say our insistence that X, Y, or Z thing is straight or has no gay subtext is based on modern conventions and you can do a reading of this that legitimately pulls out homosexual subtext or I mean we do, we different, do that with Loki all the time. Of, yeah, we do that with Loki all the time. That's, well, I mean, I that's, I no that's a great that Loki is heteronormative. <laughs> it's super great to do this is this is really common with like the the further back you go the more common it is because 
it's the further back you go, the easier it is to say people who don't see this are reading a modern heteronormative lens, right? Like Thor is big, strong white man. Um, Jesus he puts is on a wedding dress. thin white yeah. man with beard. Um, right. But like, but see, that story is another interesting example where now it could read, like if you read it straight, it almost reads problematic from like a guy dresses up as woman to deceive person and LOL guy is dressed as woman. Yeah. But you could read it other ways too, if you wanted to. And there's probably ways you could pick out some of the words being used there and the phrasing and the implications. I just Thor be Thor threw beyond a one dimensional character by putting on a dress. Yeah, there you go. I, I just said implication and it made me think of the it's always sunny thing about the implication, which is not an appropriate oh, thing God. to be bringing up in this particular context. But anyway, we won't cut it out. We won't um, cut it out. Yeah. yeah, of course not. But yeah, so like like um the the thing about this is you're dealing with such a gap of time and meaning that um things like queer theory, what they're basically doing is saying texts that are still alive that we have access to are only valuable in so much as they're valuable to us. So we should find mine them for the meaning that is valuable to us across whatever spe spectrum of meaning that is. Now, there's a flip side of that, which you guys are certainly aware of, because if you do enough reading about Norse stuff, you get into some pretty rough communities uh, of, uh, you know, I'll just say it, white supremacists and yeah. crazy Nazi types, oh, yeah. because that's a it's like that's the opposite of the queer reading, right? That's the right. the Norse stuff is the epitome of a particular kind of masculinity. It's uh, Alexander Sarsgaard covered in blood and all 12 of his 12 yeah. pack are rippling. No. So I just want to, I want to clarify that I do not think Alexander Sarsgaard is a racist. <laughs> He's um, not a white supremacist. I don't think so. I'm just saying that that vision, that visual, they, they I feel they like gets a lot vision. of traction. They, they love that visual. Right. Yeah. No, but, but my thought was that, that there, there was very much a thing in history, you know, pretty much with the Nazi movement forming in, you know, 1930s that they, they loved the Norse mythology too. And they right. did all kinds of things with it. Right. Yep. But then, but then that idea back in the old times with the Vikings, right? Did they have kind of a fragile masculinity too, right? They wanted to appear very yeah. manly. To be unmanly right. was a problem. Yet also Odin and all this stuff around magic has a bit of the stuff like with Native American two-spirited idea. Like shamanism mm. is all about embracing this masculine and feminine within the individual. And so that that queer uh, theory reading of it, right? Probably something you get there that is what the satyr magic practitioners were actually possibly getting back then, right? So that's- right. Or maybe not, but like probably someone thought that at some point. I mean, the point is like, like the further you get into these things that like, there's a lot of different meanings and it's unintended meaning. I mentioned death of the author a, a couple minutes ago I, and I didn't get into it, but that's just the idea that like meaning of a text has nothing to do with the author's intentions. And this was like a big idea in, earlier in the 20th century that like, we do not need to, just because the author says their work is X, Y, or Z does not mean that it is not valid to read other things into it. Sean, how deep should I go? We already brought up Nazis. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I, I was going to make a joke about how, uh, I was going to make a joke here about how, like, I think beauty is in the eyes of the reader or the translator, or mm -hmm. in this case, evil might be in the eyes of the reader or the translator. And sometimes <laughs> the translation is all we have to kind of go by, or the multiple yeah. translations are all we have to go by. So, right. And, the, and even a translation, well, I'll just say to that, because I think that's a really good point. Like, even a translation is still an exercise. It, like someone reading your translation is still interpreting it in their own lens. So, so say that like, if you have the big, whatever, the big well, the big like mouth of the well, that is the original text. By the time you get down to Jackson Crawford's, this is not a good analogy because this isn't how wells work, but you have a much narrower slice of it. Maybe it's a funnel, I don't know. Anyway, you get to Jackson Crawford's translation and you have you have a, a piece of that interpretation now, right? You have some of the connotations, some of the structure. Now you get somebody else who's a racist 
um, we'll just do that, um, who reads that poem, they're going to bring everything they can to that to interpret that already limited reading of the original in a very specific way to work to their ends. That's just what, that's what poetry is. That's what literature is, is like, you know, people make their own meaning. I know David and I in previous episodes have made a joke about how like when these stories were written or like verbally conveyed like 1500 years ago, there was a massive game of telephone like across distances. And now in the 21st century, we have access to the internet. We can like read like all the potential theories or all the potential stories. So it's not only a big game of telephone, it's like a big game of everybody looking at every version of telephone and coming up with their own ideas to fit their narrative or something like that. So. Well, and, and Chuck, I'll take it even a little deeper, that idea that does the author know what they're writing, right? Because that's yep. the idea of yep. Carl Jung and the collective unconscious, right? So they'll, they can tell you what they think they're writing, but is their unconscious mind even writing something beyond what they know it's writing? And before I even leave you with that one, just the thought that to <laughs> interpret, you know, what Jackson Crawford does as his translation, that tells you something about him, right? You actually get to yeah. learn about like him, right? That when someone right. uh, in history, we would say is quite evil, gives you a reading. Oh, you get to learn a lot about them. By how absolutely. they read it, right? And so that's uh, that just fascinates me. But I wanted to throw that back at you. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, absolutely. A translation is a personal project. It's your you put yourself into a work, and so it's not just that it comes out in a different language. It comes out for, with a different writer. And I think that's I mentioned at the beginning that some some like foreign poets, foreign is a weird word to use in this context. Some poets who get their work translated, even if they speak the language into which the poem is being translated, will still allow or still just have someone else do it because that's sort of an act of I wrote this poem in this particular context right. and that's me. You can translate it. And then it's not quite me. It's because you um, have that culture, right? If, if you want a, yeah. a French person to translate it, the way I understand French is not, I don't understand French at all, but it's different than how sure. a French person brings it into the French culture. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah, something very much there. I will say this is a much more interesting conversation than the one I originally pitched to you guys, which was to talk about the Norse inspired uh, faction of the Warhammer 40 K universe. Um, That's for another episode, Chuck. I know, right? I know I put that in the notes. So, (laughs) Is there anything else that Chuck needs to plug? Um, I have a YouTube channel that I update once every 700 years or something. Um, It's called CSL. I actually have a new video coming out soon. But do you have a Twitter with that if people want to bug you on Twitter? I guess there's the comments. Uh, Twitter, you can bug me at my Twitter handle is uh, KaibardCSL. Oh, God, is there an underscore in that? This is how good I am at at social media. Uh, yeah, put it in the show notes. Kybart CSL, please yell at me. No one yells at me. I really want people to yell at me because then if people yell at me, then my yelling comes off less like I'm yelling at a wall. No, but I do the YouTube channel, um, which is just a lot of like analysis of whatever game or movie or TV show I saw the other day. There's one of those. Yeah, really, and then hopefully you'll find I really me. Enjoyed. I really enjoyed that one that was because your style on some of those, right, is you'll put like a bunch of text and you're talking over it. And there was someone who had a comment being like, Chuck, it's a little hard to follow because you're talking at the same time and there's a lot of text. And then you had a video that was about why that's a thing that's funny. That's a thing on YouTube. To use that. (laughs) It's a thing that's funny. It's also just like a feature of YouTube because like it's a a medium. I'm not going to get into this too much, uh, but similar to poetry, YouTube is a separate medium from just like watching something on TV, right? And like the assumption that you're at your computer and can pause is a thing in YouTube. So a lot of people uh, who are way too online do that of like, shoving a bunch of text that you only see for a second or way too much text to be able to read unless you pause and they're expecting that you're going to pause anyway right. but also it's yeah like you, um you couldn't catch up and read all that at once that's the joke and when i got when i got watched right. that part i'm like oh that's great I, I like this a lot right like yeah yeah the whole one that yeah that's the uh uh brian david gilbert yeah 
uh, episode. And he does that one video, which is like the half the joke of the of the video he made is that his explanations of what's going on are like you can just barely process them before he's moved on to the next joke. Um, But yeah, find me there. And then hopefully you'll also find me as a future recurring guest on Between Two Ravens, uh, a podcast. uh, The Norse Mythology podcast with Sean and David. I want to read. Yeah, I want to read a bunch of poems with Chuck for next time. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good to me. Yeah, no, this is awesome, Chuck. Thanks. Yeah. You are you are our first uh, ever guest on. It's an podcast, honor. So we appreciate it. I know we're going to have a few more guests moving forward, but the the invitation awesome. is always going to be out there if you want to come and talk about Forehammer or excuse me, Warhammer forty thousand. If you have how yeah. it relates to Norse mythology, that's that's a good episode. We're, we're planning episodes already. Yeah, I, my thinking of how it trans how it relates is very sloppily. Um, and then I also mentioned I played that God of War game a few uh, weeks ago, and I was like, "Hey, I know these people because I listened to Between Two Ravens." Mamiya um, is there. Yeah, There's he's ahead. But but yeah, so um, yeah, I would be delighted to come back on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, and uh, everybody have a great night. Good night. Bye.